Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club Shocktober Edition. Oh, pew, pew. it's me, Witch Hazel. <laughs> I'm right. trying out some new voices. And this week, we are talking about the favorite hopping vampire series. Also, the one that actually started the entire trend or the way that it's presented in media today, Mr. Vampire. That's right. Every year on Shocktober on the podcast, we like to talk about at least one horror franchise. We've burned through a lot of the ones that you know and love. Your Nightmares, your Fridays, your Texas Chainsaws. So it's time what to travel. What about me, the leprechaun? <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the leprechaun one day. We are going to, again... Every movie will be covered on this podcast at some point. But right now, we're traveling overseas, and I'd like to define our terms to begin with. You know, you hear a Chinese hopping vampire, and you think... A Jiangxi. Yeah, it's it's not really a vampire. Jiangxis are reanimated corpses. They're really more like zombies. They are dead, unthinking creatures who crave human blood, but are not seductive about it like Dracula is. But if you throw the original Chinese title into Google Translate, it pops out Mr. Zombie comes out. In Taiwan, it actually had a different title, and we'll talk about, especially the first one, that it was super popular in Taiwan and Japan, which has kind of made the franchise. The title was Hold Your Breath for a Moment, which is something that happens in the first movie to kind of get around these hopping vampires. And it's something, and we'll probably mention this a lot, that they created just for these movies and have been folded into just what we think of as hopping vampires. Now... Because we're talking about something that is so culturally specific, we need to put the caveat, me and Will are two white guys who only know this information from the internet and the movies that we watch. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of goes without saying at this point, but maybe mm-hmm. maybe it's still worth restating. And Justin is saying that because he doesn't want you to write in with corrections and nope. with telling us how to actually pronounce words and names. We, we Listen, gotta... if you tell me, all it will do will make me kind of like stop and take an extra five seconds when I have to say a name, and then I will just say it incorrectly anyway, <laughs> probably finding a new way to say it. So for a few years in the 80s, Chinese hopping vampire movies were... All the rage. The first entry in the genre was Sammo Hung's Encounters of the Spooky Kind in 1980, but Mr. Vampire in 1985, which was produced by Sammo, was the real trendsetter. It spawned four official sequels and many imitators in a short span of time between 1985 and 1992. Now, I should note that like the vampire in classic kind of Chinese context has existed since like forever in fiction, even showed up in movies in the 30s. And there's even kind of like slight variations. They ain't hopping though in the Shaw Brothers Hammer co-production, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. But it wasn't until Encounters of the Spooky Kind that you get kind of like the rules, visual look and aesthetic that would then be adapted and still continues to this day. So like in Encounters of the Spooky Kind, which is basically Sammo Hung doing a very evil dead-ish supernatural comedy, like a Looney Tunes-esque anything goes, throw everything at the wall, like, you know, there's morphing monsters, giant hands, and the vampire 
happens to just be one of them. And in the movie, Encounter the Spooky Kind, he shows up kind of the way that they would get away from it, which is like very oatmeal-faced, very gray, and monstrous. Like, oftentimes the vampires, when they're supposed to be portrayed in a threatening fashion, have like smoke coming out of their mouth. In the Mr. Vampire series and the films that imitate them, the vampires have rigor mortis. So they all stand upright with their arms extended and they hop because they can't bend their joints. They're, they're very pale. They have long fingernails. And crucially, their vulnerabilities are, you know, they can't detect people when they hold their breath. So, you know, you plug your nose when you're around them and the vampire will stand there, not notice you. And also, if they make now, does it, that only happen in the first movie? I don't think it happens in the other ones. No, it's in it's in Mr. Vampire Two as well. Oh, it is okay. I, I believe so. In that fight scene, sorry, I've watched four of these in like a short span of time, and now they're all blurring together. I well, mean, I, the main por- thing is that you put you can put a piece of parchment paper, yellow, on their head with a kind of incantation written on it, and that'll stop them dead in their tracks. That is consistent with any hopping vampire movie. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I've watched so many of these movies in such a short span of time that I'm starting to now forget which was in which. And particularly confusing is the fact that the the five official Mr. Vampire movies, some of them don't actually have vampires in them. Some of them have now, other supernatural I'm going to correct elements. you there, Will. There's actually only four official Mr. Vampire movies. Mr. Vampire 1992 is not a Golden Harvest production. It is a Golden Princess production. Okay, wait, wait. Hang on a minute, though. Mr. Vampire 1992, to add to the confusion... The fifth and final. It has all the stars from Mr. Vampire number one. It's the the only one that has all the stars from the first Mr. Vampire and has the same director, and they're basically playing the same characters. That is the wonderful world of Hong Kong cinema where, listen, we're pumping movies out so fast, maybe we can confuse people. Does it really matter if it's an official entry or not? Not really. Because, like, as we'll get into it, like, after the Mr. Vampire film, the next year, there was a film called New Mr. Vampire that featured a lot of the same cast from the first one that was not a golden harvest production okay so what unites the movies though and this includes most of the imitators as well like magic cop or close encounters with vampire or i'm gonna be the correction guy in this one magic cop does not feature any hopping vampires in it okay well neither neither does mr vampire mr vampire (laughs) three but you know it's part of the it's part of the wave i mean what unites them I mean, if vampires don't unite all these movies, what do unite them are most of them, again, not all, but most of them star a man named Lam Ching Ying, who, if you've seen any Hong Kong action movies, you've, you've seen, seen him. him. He's yeah. in seemingly every famous movie. He started as a stuntman, eventually became a beloved supporting player and sometimes star. You'll know him because he has a kind of a pinched face. Well, also his nickname, the one eyebrow priest. And that's how people usually call them when he shows up in all of these supernatural movies. He plays a Taoist wizard, I guess. Yeah, and he, that's a priest. Leading two bumbling sidekicks. Now, the sidekicks, they can change. They can be played by multiple actors throughout the films. Sometimes they're played by the brother of the actor in the first one, like in Mr. Vampire 4, where instead of the co star of Mr. Vampire number one, it's his brother, Chin Karlock. It's like, oh my God, all of these, like, I made so many notes on this that are basically gibberish to anybody reading, where it's like, just show me the hopping vampires. Is it fun? And I have to say, the first Mr. Vampire movie I think is super fun. Uh, and I yeah. think it does something that the other ones don't, which is it's kind of threatening in the way that it uses the vampire. Right. Mr. Vampire from 1985 is, I think, like basically a perfect movie. 
it's on the shelf next to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in terms of great horror comedies. And crucially, and you alluded to this, it's great because the vampires really are a threat. Like they are unstoppable killing machines. And they're also, even though they have rigor mortis, even though they just like hold their hands out, they are unbeatable Kung Fu fighters because they, they don't have a brain. They're just moving forward. Now we should specify there is technically no martial arts in these movies, but it's just like using these martial arts skills that these men had just beaten into them, probably at most of the Peking opera schools that they went to, that you get all of these wild acrobatics and physicality. And what's fun about these Mr. Vampire films is that there are like certain rules that the vampires need to work within, like the fact that they don't really move so much. Their arms are always outstretched and like they can basically just hop. And what kind of physical, funny, slapstick, kinetic set pieces can you build out of that i would say that the first mr vampire is interesting because there's not that much vampire in it the vampires show up at the beginning and then later on yung wah shows up as the vampire and he i think he's in two scenes but both of them play like oh my god this vampire is going to kill us we need to hide we need to hold our breath and it's just probably the music that they put under it too it's the tone that it's hitting it's like as opposed to like the in all the other mr vampire films well the stakes are very important in the fight in well not the fight the action scenes in mr vampire because in a normal fight scene if the villain lands a blow it's a temporary setback if a vampire lands a blow by which i mean he he bites the person it's game over so every move now, has consequence i believe that mr vampire is also the one that started this a vampire bite will infect you and turn you into a vampire thing you mean bram stoker didn't start that <laughs> Well, in the in this one, it's more of an infection thing, kind of like a zombie. Right. And that you slowly transform into one. In the case of the first Mr. Vampire, Ricky Hoy of the Hoy Brother comedy team, looking permanently like a 60-year-old man. <laughs> and, like, he's in this early one from 1985, and when he shows up later on in 1992, recast in the role of the bumbling sidekick, you're like, oh, don't, don't make this poor man do this. In this first one, the plot is basically Lam Ching Ying is is a, a priest. He has two bumbling sidekicks. They have to get involved with moving someone's burial site and oh, stuff goes wrong. And so I would also say that the first Mr. Vampire film, it's the most cohesive one that there's like kind of one story with the same group of characters that you can follow throughout. That is not the case with all of these movies. I also really like the first one, all of the kind of supernatural things they have to do to keep the vampire in place and protect themselves. And it's like very convoluted and they also take their time with it. Later on when people would do this kind of hopping vampire stuff, they would just kind of do it in the moment. Like for example, Magic Cop, which is all this wild, you know, craziness doesn't matter if it you know makes sense when you think about it, it just seems to make sense in the moment and i kind of like the oh this is scary let's really take our time with it and make sure that you know we protect ourselves from this walking corpse well most of the hong kong pop cinema at the time didn't have completed shooting scripts you know no they in fact sometimes they didn't even have completed funding before they started they'd shoot like 10 minutes and then they'd attract more investors from that 10 minutes and then keep going with this one like it you're right it does feel like a coherent plot in the sense that the stakes are established early on and a certain set of characters are established and then the the situation accumulates like when the Ricky Hoy character gets bit 
And he spends so much of the movie trying to hide his like increasing vampiric infection, you know, rapidly cutting his fingers or like trying to make it look like his pale face is because he's decided to put on makeup. Like there's yeah. like there's like an, a, 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 a comic accumulation to that that creates a sense of momentum that carries the whole movie forward. Whereas a lot of the sequels, like I love the sequels, but they're kind of like they're a little slapdash. It's a little well, bit it's like, kind of like three movies squished together. Mm-hmm. And I say this like if you watch Mr. Vampire now coming fresh, having not seen any of the other ones, you'll probably go, wait a minute. But there's a whole subplot with like a ghost woman. <laughs> and that doesn't really have anything to do with. I'm like, well, that's really close to the main plot compared to some of these other movies like Mr. Vampire 2, which is a quickie sequel that was rushed in less than a year into theaters, mostly because number one, it was a huge hit. Number two, the imitators specifically from Taiwan were already popping up like mushrooms all over the, I could not believe how many hopping vampire films came out in 1986. It is bananas. So Mr. Vampire 2, which doesn't have the greatest reputation, which surprised me because I loved it. I thought it was really fun. I loved I loved all these movies, by the way. They're so full of just entertainment, even the worst of them. And like, you know, the worst the worst one I've seen is probably Mr. Vampire 1992. It's like the acrobatics are still just like insane. Well, the thing about Mr. Vampire 2 is it put a curse on this whole genre by introducing one thing. The Kitty Vampire, which, oh man, the especially Taiwanese producers run with. There are four official Mr. Vampire films in Hong Kong. There's a series in Taiwan called Hello Dracula that has five movies in it and multiple ripoffs and spinoffs. And it's all kitty like, hey, I'm a kid vampire. Can't you treat me in an E.T. style way? Right. So that's basically what happens in this one. It's set, unlike the first Mr. Vampire in the modern day, set in 1980s Hong Kong, where a team of architects accidentally unleash a family of vampires. And the child vampire ends up getting sort of adopted by just a a kid sister in Hong Kong who, like, hides him in her closet. Now, and this little child vampire ends up being ingratiated into the kids like little kids social circle and going on wacky adventures ends up becoming almost fully domesticated and not a vampire kid at all and i actually kind of loved this subplot the way you're describing it makes it sound so much more coherent than it really is because you spend 30 minutes with three characters that once the half hour point hits you do not see them for like another 75 minutes you spend 30 minutes with the kid vampire kind of you know ingratiated with the other kids and then we follow Lam Ching Ying, Ying Biu and Moon Lee completely different characters doing something else right so well not you and you and Biao but Lam Ching Yi and Moon Lee were in the first movie they're now playing new characters but they're basically playing like versions of the characters from the first movie it's more a kind of spiritual sequel than than an yeah. actual sequel the fight scene halfway through or not the fight scene uh, the action scene it's the best one you talk about the Yung Bi one where he there's slow motion gas that escapes and they all have to move in slow motion I mean it's so funny and like people think that this is one of the kind of lesser ones but i mean just 
so many scenes have just so much imagination, so much kind of Looney Tunes energy. The idea of having these three actors like pretend to be doing slow motion in a fight scene is just so funny. And all the different variations that they find within this concept. And then you also have bone breaking stunts of like poor stuntmen dressed as vampires being thrown into walls and then landing on tables that just explode underneath them. People need to understand these movies are all choreographed by the Sammo Hung stunt team. So you get that brutal we need to see the hits for real happening in this film and like i say i mean mr vampire 2 you know there are so many scenes in it that just have a kind of pure cinema energy to them i'm thinking of that scene where you know the mother and father vampire who are who are more mindless than the child vampire are sort of like hopping from police car to police car in the and they're just explosions all around them as they're doing it it's just a beautiful sight to behold and then the last scene which is kind of like a showdown between the vampires and the SWAT team and then Lam Ching Yi comes in and you know there's like like rocket launchers and stuff I mean oh this is the one where like the vampire at the end turns into a mush man doesn't he because he like bursts out of the house and he's like oh or am I confusing that with that also happens in Mr. Vampire 3 well in there's Mr. A, Vampire a, 3 there's a kind of like bar fried deep fried like, monster yeah well, wh- well why are we talking about Mr. Vampire 3 which is the kind of like Halloween 3 the season of the witch of the series where there are mm-hmm. actually actually no vampires in it it's no vampires <clears throat> we're back to a period setting this one stars Richard Eng the prolific Hong Kong comedian one of the lucky stars he plays a, a charlatan, a phony ghost hunter. A frightener, if you will. That's right. But he accidentally invokes real powers, as so often happens in movies like this. Well, he uses two ghosts to pretend to haunt places. Then he can capture those ghosts. That's literally the plot of the Peter Jackson film, The, the Frighteners. He summons this evil witch, played by Pauline Wong, who's also in the first movie as the sort of succubus character. Yeah, like these actors like Pauline Wong, like once you get popular in a role, for example, playing a ghost, you will be a ghost in every other movie from then on out. Happened to Joey Wong, the star of A Chinese Ghost Story. And it even happened to actors in the Mr. Vampire series. Like I think it's Billy Lau plays a cop in the first one. And he shows up in multiple vampire films as just cop because it's like people are like, that's who we want to see the cop guy. Now, we're sort of reaching like the wall of my ability to talk about these movies coherently, because by the time you get to Mr. Vampire 3, it's kind of a series of scenes sort of connected. I mean, there is a plot in this movie, but it's Lam Ching Ying is still here. That's right. He ends up being the sort of like, well, he's a Taoist priest again, who the Richard Eng charlatan character calls on to help him deal with the evil forces. But like... In this movie, you've got a series of scenes. Who was that definition? Was it Howard Hawks' definition of a great movie? Three great scenes, no bad scenes. Well, this Mm -hmm. has probably got six great scenes in it. Yeah, like the thing about this movie is it's weird it's called Mr. Vampire 3. Again, no vampires. But like the villains are basically evil wizards that they fight. There's ghosts too, but mostly their main threat are wizards that like... Tons of special effects, like faces growing, as we previously mentioned, a deep fried monster that shows up that gets his eye ripped out in a, like a really gory way. You also have a kid ghost. I believe it's the same 
kid from Mr. Vampire 2, one of those kids that like acted in five movies in half a year and then like went away to be a fireman. Before we talk about Mr. Vampire 4, what were some of the other movies in the series? I know you watched Vampire versus Vampire. What is what is the relationship of that to the main series? It is a Golden Harvest film. So technically it's kind of a Mr. Vampire film. I mean, Samo, his name was on a lot of the kind of supernatural films like Spooky Spooky, for example. There was actually a Lam Ching Ying starring supernatural comedy that came out a year before Mr. Vampire called Hocus Pocus. But it doesn't really have the hopping vampire that we all know and love. But it's kind of like he's figuring out his way in like from 85 to basically like 90. Like there's so many that are coming out and they're just trying to pump them out as fast as possible. Some of them that only last in cinemas for like three days, supposedly. There's an interesting kind of like parallel universe hopping vampire film called Abracadabra that came out in 1986, I would recommend. That's like a bunch of people in like a modern day mall that opens a portal to hell filled with vampires. And it's weird to see like, oh, that's not kind of the classic way we think of them because it's everybody's figuring out their own way. Another example of that is Ronnie used The Trail, which I was very surprised to see actually came out in 1983. So that's like after Encounters of the Spooky Kind, where you get, you know, okay, this is a scary hopping vampire, but before Mr. Vampire comes out, where you kind of, you know, set that template in stone. So in The Trail, the gimmick is they are, we didn't even mention like what people use the hopping vampires for. Usually it's priests that bring them like across the countryside and you can make them hop in a line and you can bring them I think to the gravesite if you want something that is more like lucky or the feng shui is better but anyway in the Ronnie Yu film The Trail the hopping vampire is the scariest thing in the world they're like if you see it you're gonna get killed there's no martial arts scene in the movie it's basically like a bunch of like priests that are trying to capture this vampire and being killed one by one and to add that dissonance it's still kind of comedic and ricky hoy is in it before he would take on the role in mr vampire it might be worth mentioning i don't think we've quite got this point across that all of these movies are incredibly childish and vulgar i mean most of them have like really like lame bathroom comedy and you know really like horny sex jokes and i'm Wait, saying are you describing every popular entertainment to ever come out of hong kong from yeah, 1985 to yeah and i mean i'm now? saying i'm saying this with love you know if you, the it, wong jingification of hong kong entertainment you know yeah if you can get a sort of flatulent ghost then you've got yourself <laughs> I, mean, I love it i'm laughing already you've got yourself a mr vampire i think movie. mr vampire 2 has like a non-sequitur gag where a gorilla runs out of a cave after someone no i think that's wait which one is it anyway very funny when that happens so i don't know if you had a chance to watch mr vampire 1992 it's anything but i did oh okay it's not essential viewing did, did well, you we're like skipping it? mr vampire 4 okay too, we'll, get to, to we'll get to one. mr vampire 1992 in a minute i'm just so eager to talk about it but yeah <laughs> i know mr vampire 4 is the only one in the series that doesn't star lam ching ying his part is well his his sort of role is instead essayed by anthony chan a member of the winners band the very popular hong kong pop group and anthony chan had a similar role in the first mr vampire he kind of bookends the movie where he shows up he takes the hopping vampires to like make him travel then he comes back right at the end and he's kind of playing that character in mr vampire 4 the movie is basically the human plot is about a feud between two rival spiritualist neighbors the anthony chan character is a taoist 
the Wu Ma character is a Buddhist. They're both rival priests slash ghostbusters, but they eventually have to work together to stop the hopping vampire invasion. I enjoyed this one, especially if you watch them from one to four, because it's like, we're going back to basics. Mm -hmm. We just have a super vampire in this one that everybody has to take on and fight that really wants to kill you and is gray skinned. Well, yeah, coming after Mr. Vampire 3, which is without a doubt the wackiest of the series, a one that's like, not really horror at all is purely about like sort of you know richard richard eng's bare ass and like you know yeah lots of looney tunes gags as well this one like reestablishes the vampires as a threat and mm-hmm. so it sort of works i mean i wouldn't call any of these movies scary exactly but no. but but some of them like the first one and the fourth one have the sort of charge of like, there's a real threat here. Like, ah, this thing is going to kill me. And I really like that. Like, there's not too much to say about Mr. Vampire 4 because it is so like basic and straightforward. But man, watching it and just remembering like reading like Hong Kong movie review sites back in like the mid 2000s, they're like, this is the worst one. Oh, so lazy, bad. Then you watch it and you're like, boy, I wish any movie that came out of anywhere had like one tenth of the energy and invention that this does. If this, you know, if Mr. Vampire 4 came out this year, it would be considered like the best action movie of the decade. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. And I mean, it sounds like we're hyping it up which we are, but they, they just don't make movies like this anymore. And that's a real bummer that they don't. But maybe it's better that, you know, all these children didn't have to be abused for five years in schools by masters that broke their bodies. So I didn't revisit Mr. Vampire 1992, which comes at the very end of bad, the cycle. Bad, it's bad. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. But like the hopping vampire cycle basically lasted from 1985 to 1992. And then after 1992, there were basically no more hop. There were like a million in those years and then none again until like the 2000s do you know that they're still being made directed by ricky lau who directed all four movies that we mentioned all five movies we mentioned today this poor man is like please don't make me direct hopping vampire movies like sorry buddy you gotta do vampires now and i only watch one of them and the thing is you can't do ghosts and goblins in chinese mainland blockbusters so it's revealed to just be Scooby-Doo fakers in the right. movie. And like, if he's done multiple, are they all fakers in every one of the movies that he's done? Uh, what a hell to live in. But okay, so give us, I know you just want to talk about the plot of Mr. Vampire 1992. Well, well because it's fucked up. I mean, it's the movie that reunites yeah. the cast from the first movies. You got the same priest, you got the same two bumbling assistants, but they are, they are fighting the like reanimated spirits of aborted fetuses. And they even say, like, they're angry because they got aborted. Right. Now, you hear that, you think, my God, what a hideous premise for a movie. The movie is 99% lame comedy. Lame. I mean, the fetuses do possess a pregnant woman and then control her to try to kill everybody else. Yeah, that's kind of funny, I guess. I mean, so the scene in this movie that's burned in my memory. Did you see this scene when you were watching it? A little, like, demon baby, like who's like what three years old or something pulls out his little dick and like pisses on one of the heroes that is within the first seven minutes of the movie and that is followed up with that same demon baby grabbing the dick of another character and stretching it like laffy taffy before letting it snap back so i completely forgotten that this is unsimulated maybe because you blacked out when the like the kid is pissing on the guy and then it cuts to just a naked kid pissing <laughs> like like actually to the imagination actually yeah, actually 
So, so that's the scene. I mean, I saw this movie. This is one of those movies that I like got from the bargain bin when I was a teenager. And, you know, mm. much like Mr. Bernstein and that that girl that he only saw once, but he I bet a month never went by that he never thought of that girl. <laughs> I bet a month has never gone by when I didn't think of that kid pulling at his little dick and pissing on a guy in Mr. Vampire 1992. Man, those 90s movies up until Stephen Child's like King of Comedy, there was so much kid pissing and like they just show the kid too. Okay. Like, so- Stephen Chow's King of Comedy has a scene where there's like a little like he's what four years old a little boy yeah and Stephen, and Stephen Chow, Chow takes a stick doesn't he and he, he literally starts, starts like, playing whacking. with the kid's dick like for real yeah. <laughs> okay I feel bad bad talking about this we need to move on because I never hear anybody in the record, talk it about exists. this I never hear anybody yeah. talk about this and it's right there it's insane <laughs> so uh, Mr. Vampire 1992 yeah like Will said that's pretty much like the nail in the coffin of the official. I mean, Lam Ching Ying would continue to play the one eyebrow priest. He had a series on TV in 1995, but then unfortunately, a couple of years later, he passed away from cancer at the age of 44 years old. That's how young he was when he passed away. But he made 100 movies in that from when he was able to until, you know, it was all over. Did you, you saw Rigor Mortis, right? The like, po-faced serious take on mr vampire i actually never did it came out in really? the early 2010s it was like you know a mainland chinese blockbuster basically there was a no it's of, a hong kong film oh okay it was a revival yeah. of the hopping vampire concept and i never saw it because it looked kind of dreary to be honest dowie it is but what's amazing about it is it has all of the actors from these movies some of them like ching su ho who's in mr vampire 1992 and the first one playing himself <laughs> as a washed up actor who used to be in hopping vampire movies incredible it's also got anthony chan like we mentioned who plays the kind of like priest figure in the movie kara hoy richard ing is in there too billy lao the cop from these movies and they're all broken down just beaten individuals living in a giant j-horror style apartment building that is then attacked by a hopping vampire <laughs> So the first four Mr. Vampire movies plus Encounter of the Spooky Kind and Vampire vs. Vampire are on the Criterion channel right now. Well worth watching. Yeah, that that should be, if you haven't seen them, definitive this season watching. And if you want to go and explore, Samuel Hung, like I said, did a lot of other supernatural films. It's really diminishing returns, like the late period Encounters of the Spooky Kind 2. Bad, bad, not good. Gambling Ghost. You ever see that one? Oh, yes. Well, Gambling Ghost, isn't that a Chu Yang Ping movie? Oh, no. I know that one you're thinking of. You're thinking of King Swindler. Yes, King Swindler. Sorry, I'm thinking of all the like films that Samuel Hung seemingly made because he had gambling debts that he had to pay off. <laughs> There's another one where it's like, I think it's Samuel Hung's wife commits suicide and comes back as a ghost. Oh my goodness. Ghost punting? Yeah. Is that what that is? Oh, well, ghost punting is one of the... There's so many. We can't even get into them. Maybe we'll do, uh, later on in the future, all these Samuel Hung non-vampire-related supernatural comedies. <laughs> I'd love to. That's a franchise, right? Yeah. Well, Justin, do we have any letters? As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from... Mo and he goes no sorry it's not Mo from the three stooges will 
I know you're very excited about that. Aw. They go, I'm a big fan of the podcast. You introduced me to the films of Matt Farley and Damon Packard, two auteurs whose work I enjoy and think about fairly often. I also recently dove into the films of Patrick Wang after listening to your episode. And boy, A Bread Factory really is just a phenomenal film. I was surprised that it didn't catch on in a way similar to the way Drive My Car did, since it's great in a way that really did remind me of a Hamaguchi film, while of course being its own thing. Yeah, I mean, Patrick Wang is probably asking himself that question all the time too whereas like why can't my films catch on will pointed out to me that our patrick wang episode probably got more traction than most of the things we've done lately yeah a lot of people shared it and i think that's just because so few people have talked about like so few people have done a podcast on patrick wang anyway i was just very happy to see a lot of people watching patrick's movies i was also happy to see that he heard the episode himself he posted about yes it. Or at least he listened to one of our episodes. He's like, I listened to your Samuel Phil episode. Very good. Maybe he didn't want to hear us talk about him, his stuff, <laughs> which is understandable. So, But I appreciate Patrick for retweeting that. That's very appreciative. And I can't wait to see what he does next because I hear from people that he is working on a new movie. So does this letter writer have a question for us or is just this compliment? Yes, I'm getting to it. I was saying the letter continues. Lastly, I'm also part of my college's film club where we try to watch one movie a week and have a discussion about it. So far, we've watched really wonderful variety of movies. I made a letterbox list, but I'm interested in filling in more blind spots. One topic that's a little contentious within the club has been slow cinema. I and a few other club members really enjoy the slower paced movies we've seen, but the reactions to them have been wide ranging and Made for some fascinating discussions. We've watched films by Gus Van Sant, Elephant, Chiming Lang, The River, and Chantal Ackerman, Jean Dilman. I know it's difficult to make recommendations for a group that you don't know anything about, but I was wondering if either of you had some suggestions for films that would make a good discussion topic. In particular, things that won't just end up with everyone sitting around a table agreeing that the movie is good. This has happened every time we've watched a Coen Brothers film. Anyway, thank you for the great podcast, and I hope you're all doing great. Mo. Emmanuel in America, uh, <laughs> Lorna the Exorcist, uh, a cat in the brain, the late period Lucio Fulci <laughs> joint. No. Okay. So talking about slow cinema, a movie that is probably like a little bit too obvious and probably everyone's already seen. But I remember like when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16, it sort of changed my understanding of how a movie could be paced and why is the good, the bad and the ugly. Now, mm. again, a lot of you have probably, a lot of your, your, your friends have probably seen it, but if you want to like think about slow cinema, if you want to think about like, like when I saw that movie, when I was in high school and there's that scene where Eli Wallach just like runs around the desert or there's the standoff where it's just cutting back and forth between the three guys eyes while the music swells. And, you know, just like the absurd length of the movie, Once Upon a Time in the West is obviously another great example that just has scenes that are drawn out beyond all reason. Like, if you want to get people into slow cinema, I would maybe watch those movies, which are so, like, fun and accessible, and maybe just talk a little bit about, like, why do these movies work? Why is the choice being made to extend these scenes for so long? And, and you know, what are the cinematic elements from the music to the acting to the cinematography doing that justifies this length. I don't know. That's what I would say. I mean, if you want to like really fill in any blank spots and you want slow cinema that will not test a group audience too much. I mean, you got to check out the work of Abbas Kiwastami 
because he's doing a lot of interesting thing and also like what cinema can be like taste of cherry 95 minutes but it's slow and so you'll you know people may get frustrated but that may lead to conversation about like okay but why is he doing it the way that he's doing it and then something like close-up is just like asking questions about what cinema is what is representation like what does it mean to tell these kind of stories if you want to go more modern that's like slow but then we're getting into like very long stuff you could check out hubo's an elephant sitting still i really like that movie it is very long but i think it's slow in a way that there's a lot of kind of visual invention that you can discuss about it i mean now i'm thinking of all the slow filmmakers that it's like oh well then you could watch this movie uh, the traveling players we never did that director right no, uh, no i threatened him thodoros angelopoulos i really like his movies and he uses slow cinema and long takes in really interesting ways where he's like cutting through time in the same take but without giving you any signifiers so you just have to kind of figure it out as you're going if you want to like get people in with like oh french new wave you guys know that right jean godard check out some jacques rivette because he has you know his films are slow, but they're also very eclectic. And I mean, Celine and Julie go boating. That's a movie with a lot to talk about. I'm sure somebody that watches it with you is going to be, what was that? That was nothing. But then that allows you to kind of discuss it. And for people that did like it, what did you like about it? And I mean, Celine and Julie go boating. That is, you know, a gateway drug, of course, to the cinema of Jess Franco. Because they actually use <laughs> some of the same kind of aesthetic obsessions in their movies. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I definitely really feel like you know, Jess Franco or whether it's Jess Franco or Antonioni or Claire Denis or all these people. Cotafavi. Cotafavi. Like <laughs> yeah. you, you see something from the trash realm that might help you might unlock something in the art realm and then something in the art realm that might like, you know, draw interesting connections back to the trash realm. Like I do think these like two spheres work hand in hand. Yeah. When you watch a Jess Franco film and please don't show the group a Jess Franco film, especially if you've never seen one. <laughs> like he's using techniques that Antonioni uses in his films too. It's just, there's a lot more parts featured from Lena Romay in his pictures <laughs> as opposed to Antonioni's films. But yeah, I love your suggestions. I mean, like close up and taste of cherry are movies that like are seemingly very difficult, but that like, lots of people love you know they, yeah. they are they are they've become like beloved classics i saw that at sinsu when they showed it on 35 millimeter one year mm. loved it when they used to do that just the wildest 35 millimeter screenings that they could do because they could go to archive sinsu being the university of toronto they don't really do it anymore and it makes me sad <laughs> oh god yeah i remember yeah the cinema study student union they used to do 35 millimeter screenings every friday and i would always say oh I'll for do free I'll do it another time because back yeah. then all movies were on 35 millimeter. It didn't seem that special, did it? Until James Cameron came around with Avatar, ruining for everybody. Well, thanks for the letter. Hopefully there's some suggestions there or at least things that maybe you want to explore a little bit more and discover if you think it would be good for the group. Did I ever say that I did once a, a screening society at Glendon University that lasted only two screenings? What did you show? Battle Royale and The Host. Just like, you know, international films that are still kind of audience pleasing i think we got three or four people not that many i befriended all of them that came and we hung out together the labyrinth of documents i had to write to like qualify as a group in the school was so much that i went i don't want to do this and then i just didn't i don't think london has had a screening society they had i don't think they had ever had one when i started and we lasted a whole two screening sessions and that was it because of damn bureaucracy 
And then in the years since, you've had God knows how many screening societies, large and small, official and unofficial. We're about to talk about one right after we finish this main episode. So next up, what are we going to be talking about for Shocktober? Maybe the most famous writer of all time, Will? That's right. We are going to be doing an episode on Stephen King. Now... I don't know for sure how we want to approach this yet. Will was like, maybe the bad Stephen King. And I was like, Will, that's 80% of Stephen King movies. (laughs) That is so much. So what if we tried to do, and this is a big try, screenplays that Stephen King himself wrote. So those can be adaptations of his own work, but that if his name is in the screenwriting credits, then we can talk about the movie. Now, this will be an interesting episode because I'm a Stephen King fanatic. Was when I was a kid, probably read like 30 of his books. Will, I believe you've only read The Shining, right? I've read The Shining and I've read On Writing, which doesn't count. (laughs) Great book. I like On Writing. It's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, and I used to read his Entertainment Weekly column, The Pop of King. Oh, we're going to talk about that? That was such an indication that Stephen King has terrible movie taste. (laughs) That's right. Just the worst. (laughs) But we'll talk about that next week. So look at what, if you want to know what we'll be watching, definitely Sleepwalkers. Because I believe that was like a famous like original screenplay by Stephen King and was directed by Mick Garris. And then I was looking at like what else he wrote. He did some new ones recently, but I want to, th- <laughs> they're bad. That's the problem. <laughs> so, like, they're not good. I believe his name is on Cycle of the Werewolf, which I think is an under, oh, sorry. It's called Silver Bullet. When it was released, a cycle is the original calendar novel that it's based on. So maybe we'll be watching that too. But Stephen King, we're going to talk about next week. Will's going to read about five books, I think, before we talk yeah, about yeah, it. So you yeah, get like a real right. understanding right. of King. And so until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include Yankum Terry, Logan Robert, Joran Thornton, Gamera Sanders, Brian German, Ariston Socrates, Jeff, Robbie Carroll, and Dom Sinicola. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, folks, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that Justin and I have hosted a screening series at the Fox Theater in Toronto, a beautiful historic movie theater in the Beaches neighborhood. We've had four screenings so far. We showed Rumble in the Bronx, Hell's a Poppin', Glen or Glenda, and just this week we showed the 1989 Canadian direct-to-video horror classic, Things. Now, I've loved Things since... I think I figured out it was like 2009, maybe even 2008, when I stumbled upon the filmmakers hawking their wares at Fan Expo. And I just stopped and went, what's this? And they're like, hey, we made an indie indie horror film. And I was like, okay, I'll buy it. And they all signed it. And then I went to the Trash Palace screening that night. And I was like, what is this? Like, I think maybe at the time I was like, this is bad. I don't like this. But then, like the virus that things is, it haunted me. I just couldn't stop thinking. I showed everybody I knew things. Like, it, for a while, it seemingly was playing nonstop in the basement apartment that I lived in when people visited. Well, our friend Paul Karup, who writes the Canucksploitation blog, and who I think was one of the first people to really love things, mm-hmm. I remember him saying that, like, your first viewing of things is sort of preparation for your real first viewing of things. Like, y- you need to just get acquainted with it. 
I think that one of the pioneers of things studies was Robin Bougie and his cinema sewer article, which is like a multi-page article breaking down like this is why you need to watch things with beautiful illustrations. And I think it was that article that actually kickstarted Barry J. Gillis and Andrew Jordan to put it back out on DVD after the VHS was like so rare it was going for like tons of money. So it's a it's a basically zero budget Canadian horror movie that was made by two guys in Scarborough, Gillis and Jordan, and it's sort of a haunted house movie. It's about a guy and his friend who go to like a house. I was going to say a cabin. It's supposed in the to woods. be in the woods, but it's actually a house just in Scarborough. <laughs> and there are there are things there. There are little little beasts. And they're the result of a bat experiment gone wrong by the sinister Dr. Lucas. But none of none of what I said conveys the vibe of the movie. You know, what's interesting about that Paul Corp comment is I agree with it, but I think there's a way to fast forward your appreciation of things. And that's to watch it with a big crowd. Oh, yeah. Because, man, does this movie play well with the crowd. Me and Peter Kaplowski showed it a couple of years ago at Laser Blast Film Society. And I was a bit reticent to show it because I was like, it's so slow. Like, is it just going to be like receive like awkwardness? Will people try to MST3K it? Like, how will this play with an audience? And I was shocked when we played it. It played like gangbusters. People were with it. They were laughing. And so when we did it at the Fox again, it played exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, we're, we're trying to cultivate an atmosphere that is like, it's okay to laugh at these movies, but you yes. have to also love them. And, and mm-hmm. like, I know what that feels like when you're in the room and there's something about this movie, like it's been called the worst Canadian film of all time, which of course we vigorously disagree with. Mr. Paul Gross's filmography. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's a sort of like accidental avant-garde movie. You know, it has a sort of Inland Empire vibe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Countless bizarre artistic decisions and hilarious moments. But like you can feel you could feel the love in the room for the movie because there's something about the movie. The guys making it are so earnest and there's such a like sweetness to it. And it also has this like guys getting together and goofing around and making a horror movie quality to it. And it's also clearly supposed to be funny. Oh, as yeah. Well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like there's jokes in it and the jokes because they're sandwiched between things that, let's be honest, you knew they didn't want it to turn out that way. Make them even funnier when you're watching it. This is a film that almost nothing happens in it. But like watching it like a week ago, I'm like, this is all killer, no filler. There's like a new joke every 30 seconds that I'm laughing my head off. Just a line reading of the movie starts with about 30 minutes of like three guys just hanging out in a living room, turning on lights, going up to a a fish on the wall, tapping it and going, hmm, yep, that's plastic. And we had a blast specifically because thank you so much for everybody that turned out. I think it may have been the biggest turnout of any of the screenings we've done up to now. I was I was stunned we had such a good turnout, honestly. (laughs) And also, thank you. Unprompted from us, two of the actors in the movie showed up to the screening and were nice enough to do a Q&A with us afterwards. The actors were Bruce Roach and John W. Pachul, who plays the legendary Dr. Lucas in this film, a character who only has two scenes and shows up right near the end of the movie and is like the big climax oh, of the film. It's like, Every it's like line Harry Lime, you know, yeah. just the impact. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Every line he's like, eh, you're just a couple of looty tunes. And he's smiling through all of it. Like what a delight that was. And 
I mean, the two guys, what a delight they were as well. Oh, yeah. They came on stage with us. They answered questions. I mean, you could, again, you, you could just feel the love in the room. The vibes were so good. I was very surprised that, well, maybe not that surprised, but Jan seemed a little bit reticent about the movie. He's like, it's bad. I don't really like it that much. We learned basically that both of the guys are only in the movie because Andrew and Barry knew them as respectively Bruce owned a bunch of video stores and Jan owned basically all the equipment in a studio where they shot a bunch of the film, including the scene where a prostitute gets naked. That's right. So so Bruce, among his stores, he had an all-horror store in the beaches called... The, the, the Video Vi- Gore Store, which I can find no reference to. All that I found is someone posted on Instagram a business card, but it's behind, like, locked. You have to... They have to accept you to follow them to be able to look at it. I'm like, no! But it was a store that was open in the beaches for less than a year because, well, according to Bruce, there was a disgruntled rival video store owner who called the police on him because he was stalking movies that were banned in Ontario at the time. So Bruce spent a night in prison for stalking I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah, I'm telling you, I Spit on Your Grave, that dusty old relic. And Bruce is interesting as well because he was kind of the missing link in this cast. In the movie itself, he disappears for like a huge chunk of it because he just wasn't available anymore. And yeah, now he's super appreciative and he's like, what a great, I mean, at one point I went up the aisle and he was sitting at the back and he just looked at me and gave me two thumbs up. And that's just surreal that like a movie I've seen like 50 times that the actors in the film were just like smiling, telling stories. Bruce, just all he wanted to do was tell stories and he had a million of them too. I mean, just on a personal level, I I met Bruce just outside the theater and I brought him in. And when I saw your eyes, Justin, light up. Light up when he came in. (laughs) Yeah. That's the guy. And they weren't sure. They're like, I don't know if Jan's coming or not. And he came and he brought a family member who to say that she was unenthused would be (laughs) polite because I was like, hey, have you seen the movie? She's like, yeah, I've seen the movie. Well, parts of it. But watching it with that audience afterward, I talked to her and she's like, you know, it is really fun. And it's like, yes, this is what we want to do. My this goodness. is the perfect experience. My goodness, Justin, when we started this podcast below those many years ago, did you ever dream that we'd be showing things to an appreciative audience and that actual never. cast members would show up? My God. Absolutely never. What are we going to do next? Probably play a movie with no cast members for uh, two years. But yeah, probably. It, it helped that they uh, lived around us and commented on a Facebook post. And Will jumped on that and was like, oh, wait, wait, we need to get in contact with these people and make sure that they come. So, yeah, we'll keep listeners updated about when the next important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classic screening is. It'll probably be in December, and it'll probably be holiday-themed. And probably in the public domain, too, because a lot of those feature films are within that sphere. (laughs) Yeah, yes. We make no money when we show films we have to pay the rights for. for, Because, you know, how how many people is the Fox seat? Maybe 200? (laughs) Let's fill those seats. 200 people. We can do it. They were very nice that they were like, oh, you can go a little bit extra. You have a Q&A, but Stop Making Sense is playing after this. And there'll probably be a bunch of people coming to this. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, you're only playing it one night. They're like, nah, it's been playing for a week. Boy, Justin, there's a lesson there. Show good movies that people like. <laughs> yeah, well, or that people know. Because we right. were showing a good movie on the night that we played and things. everyone liked it. <laughs> oh, well, I just want, before I forget. How great was it to see the two actors sworn by people who wanted autographs? It was surreal, honestly, and and like totally deserved. Yes. I was so happy to see it. But it's also wild, like these two guys from Scarborough who made one movie 30 years ago were being treated like celebrities, as they should have been. Should be. <laughs> yes. 